Section 7 of Handbook of Home Rule. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Handbook of Home Rule, being articles on the Irish question. Home Rule and Imperial Unity, by Lord Thring, Part 1. The principal charge made against the scheme of Home Rule contained in the Irish Government Bill 1886 is that it is incompatible with the maintenance of the unity of the Empire and the supremacy of the Imperial Parliament. A further allegation states that the Bill is useless, as agrarian exasperation lies at the root of Irish discontent and Irish disloyalty, and that no place would be found for a Home Rule Bill, even in Irish aspirations, if an effective Land Bill were first passed. An endeavour will be made in the following pages to secure a verdict of acquittal on both counts. As to the charge relating to imperial unity and the supremacy of the imperial parliament, by proving that the accusation is absolutely unfounded, and based partly on a misconception of the nature of imperial ties, and partly on a misapprehension of the effect of the provisions of the Home Rule Bill as bearing on imperial questions, and as to the inutility of the Home Rule Bill in view of the necessity of land reform, by showing that without a Home Rule Bill, no land bill worth consideration as a means of pacifying Ireland can be passed. The complete partisan spirit in which Home Rule has been treated is the more to be deplored, as the subject is one which does not lend itself readily to the trivialities of party debates. It raises questions of principle, not of detail. It ascends at once into the highest region of politics, it is conversant with the great questions of constitutional and international law, and leads to an inquiry into the very nature of governments and the various modes in which communities of men are associated together, either as simple or composite nations. To describe those modes in detail would be to give a history of the various despotic, monarchical, oligarchical and democratic systems of government which have oppressed or made happy the children of men. Such a description is calculated to perplex and mislead from its very extent. Not so an inquiry into the powers of government and a classification of those powers. They are limited in extent, and, if we confine ourselves to English names and English necessities, we shall readily attain to an apprehension of the mode in which empires, nations and political societies are bound together at least in so far as such knowledge is required for the understanding of the nature of imperial supremacy and the mode in which home rule in Ireland is calculated to affect that supremacy. The powers of government are divisible into two great classes. 1. Imperial powers. 2. State powers, using state in the American sense of a political community subordinated to some other power, and not in the sense of an independent nation. The imperial powers are in English law described as the prerogatives of the crown and consist in the main of the powers of making peace and war, of maintaining armies and fleets and regulating commerce and making treaties with foreign nations. State powers are complete powers of local self-government described in our colonial constitutions as powers to make laws for the peace, order and good government of the colony or state in which such powers are to be exercised. Intermediate between the imperial and state powers are a class of powers required 
to prevent disputes and facilitate intercourse between the various parts of an empire or other composite system of states, for example the coinage of money and other regulations relating to the currency, the laws relating to copyright or other exclusive rights to the use and profits of any works or inventions, and so forth. These powers may be described as quasi-imperial powers. Having arrived at a competent knowledge of the materials out of which governments are formed, it may be well to proceed to a consideration of the manner in which those materials have been worked up in building the two great Anglo-Saxon composite nations, namely the American Union and the British Empire. For if we find that the arrangements proposed by the Irish Home Rule Bill are strictly in accordance with the principles on which the unity of the American Union was based, and on which the imperial power of Great Britain has rested for centuries, the conclusion must be that the Irish Home Rule Bill is not antagonistic to the unity of the Empire or to the supremacy of the British Parliament. In discussing these matters, it will be convenient to begin with the American Union, as it is less extensive in area and more homogeneous in its construction than the British Empire. The thirteen revolted American colonies, on the conclusion of their war with England, found themselves in the position of thirteen independent states having no connection with each other. The common tie of supremacy exercised by the mother country was broken, and each state was an independent nation, possessed both of imperial and local rights. The impossibility of a cluster of thirteen small independent nations maintaining their independence against foreign aggression became immediately apparent, and, to remedy this evil, the thirteen states appointed delegates to form a convention authorised to weld them into one body as respected imperial powers. This was attempted to be done by the establishment of a central body called a Congress, consisting of delegates from the component states, and invested with all the powers designated above as imperial and quasi-imperial powers. The expenses incurred by the Confederacy were to be defrayed out of a common fund, to be supplied by requisitions made on the several states. In effect, the Confederacy of the Thirteen States amounted to little more than an offensive and defensive alliance between thirteen independent nations, as the central power had states for its subjects and not individuals, and could only enforce the law against any disobedient state by calling on the twelve other states to make war on the refractory member of the Union. A system dependent for its efficacy on the concurrence of so many separate communities contained in itself the seeds of dissolution, and it soon became apparent that one of two things must occur. Either the American states must cease as such to be a nation, or the component members of that union must each be prepared to relinquish a further portion of the sovereign or quasi-sovereign powers which it possessed. Under those circumstances, what was the course taken by the thirteen states? They perceived that it was quite possible to maintain complete unity and compactness as a nation if, in addition to investing the supreme government with imperial and quasi-imperial powers, they added full power to impose federal taxes on the component states and established an executive furnished with ample means to carry all federal powers into effect through the medium of federal officers. The government so formed consisted of a president and two elected houses called Congress, and, as a balance wheel of the Constitution, a Supreme Court was established, 
to which was confided the task of de deciding in case of dispute all questions arising under the Constitution of the United States or relating to international law. The Executive of the United States, with the President as its source and head, was furnished with full authority and power to enforce the federal laws. The Army and Navy were under its command, and it was provided with courts of justice and subordinate officers to enforce the decrees of those courts throughout the length and breadth of the Union. Above all, a complete system of federal taxation supplied the central government with the necessary funds to perform effectually all the functions of the supreme national government. The nature of the Constitution of the United States will be best understood by considering the position in which its subjects stand to the central government and their own state governments. In effect, every inhabitant of the United States has a double nationality. He belongs to one great nation, called the United States, or, as it would be more aptly called to show its absolute unity, the American Republic, having jurisdiction over the whole surface of ground comprised in the area of the United States. He is also a citizen of a smaller, local and partially self-governing body, more important than a country, but not approaching the position of a nation, called a state. It is no part of the object of this article to enter into the details of the American government, its advantages or defects. This much, however, is clear. The American Constitution has lasted nearly 100 years and shows no signs of decay or disruption. It has stood the strain of the greatest war of modern times and has emerged from the conflict stronger than before. Even during the war, the antagonism of the rebels was directed not against the Union, but against the efforts of the northern states to suppress slavery, or, in other words, to destroy, as the southern states believed, not unjustly as the events showed, their property and slaves, and consequently the only means they had of making their estates profitable. One conclusion, then, we may draw, that a nation in which the imperial powers and the state powers are vested in different authorities is no less compact and powerful, as respects all national capacities, than a nation in which both classes of powers are wielded by the same functionaries. And one lesson more may be learnt from the American War of Succession, namely, that in a nation having such a division of powers, any conflict between the two classes results in the supreme or imperial powers prevailing over the local governmental powers, and not in the latter invading or driving a wedge into the supreme powers. In fact, the tendency in case of a struggle is towards an undue centralisation of the nation by reason of the encroachment by the supreme authority, rather than towards a weakening of the national unity by separatist action on the part of the constituent members of the nation. In comparing the Constitution of the United States with the Constitution of the British Empire, we find an apparent resemblance in form as respects the Anglo-Saxon colonies, but underlying the surface a total difference of principle. The United States is an aggregate of homogeneous and contiguous states which, in order to weld themselves into a nation, gave up a portion of their rights to a central authority, reserving to themselves all powers of government which they did not expressly relinquish. The British Empire is an aggregate of many communities under one common head, and is thus described by Mr Burke in 1774, in language which may seem to have been somewhat too enthusiastic at the time when it was spoken, but at the present day does not more than do justice to an empire 
which comprises one-sixth of the habitable globe in extent and population. I look, I say, on the imperial rights of Great Britain, and the privileges which the colonies ought to enjoy under those rights to be just the most reconcilable things in the world. The Parliament of Great Britain sits at the head of her extensive empire in two capacities, one as the local legislature of this island, providing for all things at home immediately, and by no other instrument than the executive power. The other, and I think her nobler capacity, is what I call her imperial character, in which, as from the throne of heaven, she superintends all the several legislatures, and guides and controls them all without annihilating any. As all these provincial legislatures are only coordinate with each other, they ought all to be subordinate to her, else they can neither preserve mutual peace, nor hope for mutual justice, nor effectually afford mutual assistance. The means by which the possessions of Great Britain were acquired have been as various as the possessions themselves. The European, Asiatic and African possessions became ours by conquest and cession. The American by conquest, treaty and settlement. The Australasian by settlement and by that dubious system of settlement known by the name of annexation. Now, what is the link which fastens each of these possessions to the mother country? Surely it is the inherent and indestructible right of the British Crown to exercise imperial powers. In other words, the supremacy of the Queen and the British Parliament. What, again, is the common bond of union between these vast colonial possessions, differing in laws, in religion, and in the character of the population? The same answer must be given. The joint and several tie, so to speak, is the same, namely the sovereignty of Great Britain. It is true that the mode in which the materials composing the British Empire have been cemented together is exactly the reverse of the manner of the construction of the American Union. In the case of the Union, independent states voluntarily relinquished a portion of their sovereignty to secure national unity, and entrusted the guardianship of that unity to a representative body chosen by themselves. Such a union was based on contract, and could only be constructed by communities which claimed to be independent. Far different have been the circumstances in which England has developed itself into the British Empire. England began as a sovereign power, having its sovereignty vested at first solely in the sovereign, but gradually in the sovereign and parliament. This sovereignty neither the Crown nor the Parliament can, jointly or severally, get rid of, for it is of the very essence of the sovereign power that it cannot, by act of Parliament or otherwise, bind its successors. This principle of supremacy has never been lost sight of by the British Parliament. Their right to alter or suspend a colonial constitution has never been disputed. Contract never enters into the question. The dominant authority delegates to its subordinate communities as much or as little power as it deems advantageous for each body, and, if it sees fit, resumes a portion of the whole of the delegated authority. The last point of difference to be noted between the American Constitution and the Constitution of the British Empire is the fact that as Minerva sprang from the brain of Jupiter fully equipped, so the American Constitution came forth from the hands of its framers complete, and, what is of more importance, practically in material matters unchangeable, except by the agony of internecine war or some overwhelming passions. The British Empire, on the other hand, is, as respects its component members, ever in progress and flux. An Anglo-Saxon colony, no less than a human being, 
has its infancy under the maternal care of a governor, its boyhood subject to the government of a representative council and an executive appointed by the crown, its manhood under home rule and responsible government, in which the executive are bound to vacate their offices whenever they are outvoted in the legislature. Changes are ever taking place in the growth, so to speak, of the several British possessions, but what is the result? Nobody ever dreams of these changes injuring the imperial tie, or the supremacy of the British Parliament, that alone towers above all, unchangeable and unimpaired, and, what is most notable, loyalty and devotion to the crown, that is to say the imperial tie, so far from being weakened by the transition of a colony from a state of dependence in local affairs to the higher degree of a self-governing colony, are, on the contrary, strengthened almost in direct proportion as the central interference with local affairs is diminished. On this point, an unimpeachable witness, Mr. Murrayvale, says, What then are the lessons to be learnt from a consideration of the American constitutional and of our colonial system? Surely these, that imperial unity and imperial supremacy are in no degree dependent on the control exercised by the central power on its dependent members. Facts, however, are more conclusive than any arguments, and we have only to look back to the state some forty years ago of Canada, New Zealand, and the various colonies of Australia, and compare that state with their condition today, to come to the conclusion that the fullest power of local government is perfectly consistent with the unity of the empire and the supremacy of the British Parliament. Under the old colonial constitutions, the executive of those colonies was under the control of the Crown, and Mr. Murrayville says that the political existence consisted of a series of quarrels and reconciliations between the two opposing authorities, the colonial legislative body and the executive nominated by the Crown. England resolved to give up the control of the executive and to grant complete responsible government. That is to say, the governor of each colony was instructed that his executive council, or ministry, as we shall call it, must resign whenever they were outvoted by the legislative body. The effects of this change, this relaxing, as would be supposed, of the imperial tie, was magical, and is thus described by Mr. Merivale. The magnitude of that change, the extraordinary rapidity of its beneficial effects, it is scarcely possible to exaggerate. None but those who have traced it can realise the sudden spring made by a young community under its first release from the old tie of subjection, moderate as that tie really was. The cessation, as if by magic, of the old irritant sores between colony and mother country is the first result. Not only are they at concord, but they seem to leave hardly any traces in the public mind behind them. Confidence and affection towards the home, still fondly so termed by the colonist as well as the emigrant, seem to supersede at once distrust and hostility. Loyalty, which was before the badge of a class suspected by the rest of the community, became the common watchword of all, and, with some extravagance in the sentiment, there arises no small share of its nobleness and devotion. Communities which, but a few years ago, would have wrangled over the smallest item of public expenditure to which they were invited by the executive to contribute, have vied with each other in their subscriptions to purposes of British interests in response to calls of humanity or munificence for objects but indistinctly heard of 
at the distance of half the world. The Dominion of Canada has been so much talked about that it may be well to give a summary of its constitution, though, in so far as regards its relations to the mother country, it differs in no material respect from any other self-governing colony. The Dominion consists of seven provinces, each of which has a legislature of its own, but is at the same time subject to the legislature of the Dominion, in the same manner as each state in the American Union has a legislature of its own, and is at the same time subject to the control of Congress. The distinguishing feature between the system of the American states and the associated colonies of the Dominion of Canada is this, that all imperial powers, everything that constitutes a people, a nation as respects foreigners, are reserved to the mother country. The division, then, of the Dominion and its provinces consists only in a division of local powers. It is impossible to mark accurately the line between Dominion and provincial powers, but, speaking generally, Dominion powers relate to such matters, for example the regulation of trade and commerce, postal service, currency and so forth, as require to be dealt with on a uniform principle throughout the whole area of a country, while the provincial powers relate to provincial and municipal institutions, provincial licensing and other subjects restricted to the limits of the province. As a general rule, the legislature of the Dominion and the legislature of each province have respectively exclusive jurisdiction within the limits of the subjects entrusted to them. But, as respects agriculture and immigration, the Dominion Parliament have power to overrule any act of the provincial legislatures, and, as respects property and civil rights in Ontario, Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, the Dominion Parliament may legislate with a view to uniformity, but their legislation is not valid unless it is accepted by the legislature of each province to which it applies. The executive authority in the Dominion government, as in all the self-governing colonies, is carried on by the governor in the name of the Queen, but with the advice of a council. That is to say, as to all imperial matters, he is under the control of the mother country. As to all local matters, he acts on the advice of his local council. The result of the whole is that the citizenship of an inhabitant of the Dominion of Canada is a triple tie. Suppose him to reside in the province of Quebec. First he is a citizen of that province, and bound to obey all the laws with which it is within the competence of the provincial legislature to pass. Next he is a citizen of the Dominion of Canada, and acknowledges its jurisdiction in all matters outside the legitimate sphere of the province. Lastly, and above all, he is a subject of Her Majesty. He is, to all intents and purposes, as respects the vast company of nations, an Englishman, entitled to all the privileges, as he is to all the glory of the mother country so far as such privileges can be enjoyed and glory participated in without actual residence in England. One startling point of likeness in events and unlikeness in consequences is to be found in the history of Ireland and Canada. In 1798, Ireland rebelled. Protestant and Catholic were arrayed in arms against each other. The rebellion was quenched in blood, and measures of repression have been in force, with slight intervals of suspension, ever since, with this result, that the Ireland of 1886 is scarcely less disloyal and discontented than the Ireland of 1798. In 1837 and 1838, Canada rebelled. Protestants and Catholics, 
differing in nationality as well as in religion, were arrayed in arms against each other. The rebellion was quelled with the least possible violence. A free constitution was given, and the Canada of 1886 is the largest, most loyal, and most contented colony in Her Majesty's dominions. End of section 7. Recording by James Chute.